Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Willie Nelson needs no introduction. And over the course of his well over a half a century, his career, he's become ubiquitous in American music and culture. Everybody knows Willie Nelson. In fact, close your eyes right now and think about Willie Nelson. If you're listening to this in your car, don't close your eyes. But I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about Willie Nelson and what is the first thing that pops into your mind. The beard, the braids, that bandana, the smiling wrinkled face, right? Yeah. But in that picture in your mind, is that smiling face even singing? Or is he on TV stumping for Beto O'Rourke or standing on the stage at Farm Aid or or at a rally for animal rights or gay marriage or maybe he's just playing golf or maybe he's just inside the Texas in your mind shrouded in weed smoke. (laughs) And if he is singing, what is he singing? Whiskey River? Always on my mind. Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. The thing about Willie is everybody knows Willie Nelson. Everybody likes Willie Nelson. Everybody's so familiar with Willie Nelson, we all just call him Willie. This ubiquity of Willie, this iconic status of Willie, this larger-than-life figure that Willie has become is indeed amazing. But in many ways, he's grown so large, grown so monolithic, become such a colossus in American culture that his own figure has cast a shadow across the epic journey and the incredibly brilliant record that he made to set this all in motion. Every great artist has a record like this, the one that changes everything for them, the one that draws a line in the sand and says everything that has come before this was one thing, and after you hear this record, nothing will be the same. Prince had Purple Rain, the Beatles had Sgt. Pepper, the Beach Boys had Pet Sounds, and Willie Nelson would not be Willie Nelson 
the Willie Nelson you can so clearly picture in your mind with the beard and those braids and that smiling, wrinkled face, if it were not for his 1975 conceptual masterpiece, The Red-Headed Stranger. I'm Andy Bothwell for Consequence of Sound and Sony Music, and this is The Opus, Season 4. Willie Nelson's The Red-Headed Stranger. It was the time of the preacher When the story began Of the choice of a lady And the love of a man Willie Nelson wasn't a household name when Red-Headed Stranger came out in 1975. Sure, he could play shows anywhere in Texas and draw. And he'd written hit songs for some of the biggest names in country, but as a performer, he was relatively unknown. When I first saw him play in, uh, in the fall of 73, he was, at, uh, he was introducing the new 74 Fords at McMorris Ford. This is Joe Nick Potowski, former staff writer for Texas Monthly Magazine, one-time reporter for the Austin American Statesman. He's written biographies of Willie Nelson, Selena, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the Dallas Cowboys. Pretty much a legendary authority of all things Texas history and culture. And, you know, the advertising. Live band, uh, balloons, free hot dogs, uh, Cokes. And this was, it was in the body shop department on, on a flatbed trailer. And everything was so typical you know, a car dealership. Hey, we're going to introduce some new boards. we got a live band. This was so stereotypical. And even seeing the band up on stage was fairly stereotypical until they take off on a jam. And, you know, they play the song for, for 20, 30 minutes. Everybody's improvising and just going out there. And it's like, you know, you've seen country music, but you've never seen a country act like this. And it's My like, filled with tears. I must have aged 10 years, and I couldn't believe it was true. So there's Joe Nick. And yes, it is Joe Nick, because as he said... There's enough Joes in the world. So there's Joe Nick, standing in the body shop, Mac Morris Ford's, eating a complimentary hot dog, drinking a Coca-Cola, and watching local celebrity Willie Nelson jam on Buddy Mary Morning to introduce the new Ford F-150. But for as thrilling as that performance was for Joe Nick, nothing could prepare him or Willie for what was to come. Because a little over a year later, in the spring of 1975, Willie would release Red-Headed Stranger, and everything would change. The record would rocket to number one in the country charts, his first record to do so. The lead single, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, would become a number one country song in America, and needless to say, Willie wouldn't be playing any auto body shops anymore. But nobody expected any of that, least of all Willie. He was 42 years old. He released 17 albums, none of them hits. Sure, he'd written plenty of hit songs. Patsy Cline's Crazy, Pretty Paper by Roy Orbison. Funny How Time Slips Away had been recorded by Perry Como, The Supremes, Elvis, and like over 20 other artists by that time. But outside of the studios in Nashville and the Honky Tonks of Texas, Willie was still relatively unknown. And honestly, past his prime. A fact that Willie Nelson was painfully aware of. I'll remember Blue eyes crying in the rain I spoke with writer Rebecca Bengal about this time in Willie's life Before the success of Red-Headed Stranger Before the bandana and braids Willie that was born out of the hippie scene of Austin When Willie was still a working stiff songwriter Trying to put food on the table for his wife and three kids in Nashville she wrote a beautiful piece on the Red-Headed Stranger for Pitchfork a few years back. 
And there's one moment in there that really stood out to me. On a winter night, Willie, drunk, and in the deepest depression he'd felt in his life, walked out into a snowy street in Nashville, laid down in the middle of the road, and waited for his fate to arrive. I asked Rebecca to retell that story, and she suggested that Willie had said it best. So she reads here from his first autobiography, one that he wrote with Bud Shrake, entitled Willie. I remember one night in 1973 when I was 40 years old, I felt about almost as desperate as I had felt back in the early Nashville period. I got so drunk and discouraged that I laid down in the street in the snow late at night in front of Tootsie's and waited for a car to come along and run over me. Luckily, no cars came or else they missed me. And eventually I began to feel stupid and got up and went and bought another round of drinks. At the age of 40, I'd come a long way. I was successful by almost any standard. So why did I do that? because I knew I could become broke and desperate again at the time it takes to snap your fingers. Of all the low points I hit in Nashville, laying down in the snow and wanting a car to run over me had to be the lowest. Wow. So when exactly in Willie's timeline did this happen? Maybe this night, I'm not sure if it happened at the beginning. It seemed like it may have happened towards the beginning of his time in Nashville, which would have been around 1960. In this version... It's 1973, and he's 40 years old. It kind of doesn't matter to me, I think. <laughs> I think it just sort of, it sort of adds to the myth of Willie, which is, if anything, um, Willie Nelson is one of the greatest realist mythic characters ever, and the fact that he's unable to embody those things is, is probably why he's, is so much about why he's one of the greatest American singers, songwriters. So what was he doing there, laying in the street? Was he trying to commit suicide? So there was some desire there, but I don't know that it was, I, I picture it as just without real, without real intent or like meaning. Do you think he was doing it to prove a point to himself? I think on some level he might have been. Um, it's, it's almost like this is Willie who, when he... He's he can take the one of the things that's so magic about his songwriting is that he can sit down and and just pull from the literal. I mean, he tells the the great story of how he first wrote Hello Walls by just sitting in a room and looking at the walls and pulling things and thinking like this is either like a really silly song. And then, of course, Hank Cogman's like, no, Willie, that's a hit. Um, So I think in a way he was almost pushing. He was almost like walking into his own metaphor. it's kind of the ultimate country song of laying down in the snow in the middle of Nashville in front of the, one of the most famous songwriters' lounges and waiting for a car to hit you or to gather the strength and get up. I don't think he's gone into great detail about all the thoughts that were coming over him then, but I, you know, you just imagine what ends up bringing you to your feet again, you know? And, uh, think brings him to his feet again it's the music that gets him back on his feet again ultimately always and i think the other thing to remember about willie is he's been through so much pain and and great times over the years but he has such a such a mysterious interior that comes across in his songs and nowhere else and he but he also has he also possesses this just core inner strength that persists now when you meet him it's very you know it's evident in his handshake it's evident in the way that he looks at you and he does not his gaze does not steer away from yours the whole time like he 
and 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 the way that he's still on stage night after night. Um, so always he's going to pull those things together, and I think it's 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 that weird mix of of body and soul and and all these other things that brings him up again and again. At a time when the world seems to be spinning. Hopelessly out of control. Willie remains pretty tight-lipped about what was going through his mind that night in the snow. So we'll probably never really know what his intent was. He was quite adamant in his second autobiography that it was not a suicide attempt. And suggests that though he doesn't know what he was doing there, that in his words, under the craziness, there had to be a design. Or a dare. In the end... It doesn't really matter what he was doing there, or when it happened. All that really matters is that he got up, because something began to change in the years that followed that snowy night. Willie's success started to grow, but Willie started to push away from the button-down world in Nashville. He stopped wearing the rhinestone-studded nudie suits. He eschewed the saccharine sweet strings of the Chet Atkins sound. He started making more and more trips to Texas. And as a result, Willie's music started to change. And Willie started to change. The red-headed stranger was on his way. The red-headed stranger from Blue Rock, Montana Rode into town one day And under his knees was a raging black stallion Walking behind was a bay I'm going to kind of get off on a tangent here, so bear with me. I remember so clearly where I was when I heard Radiohead's Kid A. I was in my sophomore year of college. I had loved the Benz. I was blown away by Oka Computer. Everybody loves Creep. So I rushed out to Good Records in Dallas the day it came out, and I had to buy my copy. Came home, put it inside the disc changer in my Iowa boombox, sat down on the creaky futon couch in the living room of my apartment, and I listened to the whole thing, front to back. My roommate came home just as the album finished and asked me what I thought. I sat there totally stunned. And after a long pause, I just said, I don't know what I heard, but I love it. Kid A shocked and confused the hell out of listeners. But ultimately, it was a hit. It was the number one record in England. It was the number one record in America. It went platinum all over the world. And Radiohead were heralded as these artistic titans for the bravery it took to pivot their career like that. But Radiohead did that on their fourth album. They were still young men, at the top of their game, the biggest rock band in the world. They could do anything they wanted. The world was their oyster. Now imagine if Radiohead had done that on their 18th record. Imagine if they had made 15 versions of Pablo Honey, and then threw in the Benz and OK Computer right at the end, and then put out Kid A. Imagine if Metallica had made 17 Metallica records, and then all of a sudden made a folk record. Actually, imagine... If Neutral Milk Hotel had a long and prolific career making decades and decades of records that sounded exactly like Coldplay, then out of the blue released In the Airplane Over the Sea. That is exactly what Willie did when he released Redheaded Stranger. He was 42 when he made that record. He had spent almost his entire career clean-cut, short-haired, and suited up to meet the Nashville demands of a country singer. If you haven't seen Clean Cut Willie, you gotta Google it. It's, it's totally wild. 
He let producers like Chet Atkins sweeten up and polish up everything he did. He sat on the sidelines as he watched everyone sing his songs but him. He hustled what he wrote sometimes for $10 a pop. And when they demanded that Nashville gloss, he smiled, nodded, and he went along with it. I mean, you can't blame him. He had mouths to feed. But after decades and decades inside this machine, he broke. Some people, when they break, they fold like a house of cards. And they never regain their strength again. And others, like Willie, may in a moment of deep depression, drunken despair, lay down in the middle of the street and wait for whatever may come. But then they get back up. They dust themselves off. And somehow, they are strengthened by their moment of weakness. They are, like Willie, emboldened by their brush with rock bottom. Now, as poetic as it may be, it would be unfair to say that it was just that night out in front of Tootsie's in the snow that changed everything for Willie. Because I would discount the importance of people like Jerry Wexler from Atlantic Records who saw greatness in Willie that no other record executive had ever seen. He encouraged Willie to experiment and make the records he wanted with whomever he wanted, however he wanted. Without that encouragement from Wexler, he'd have never made Shotgun Willie or Phases and Stages, two brilliant concept records in their own right that, in the words of Rebecca Bengal, were Willie clearing his throat so that he could make Redheaded Stranger. Redheaded Stranger did offer this junction, you know, of, of eras of Willie's. This was like a rite of passage almost. And so, yeah, I, 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 think, I think he freed himself up with it to... I mean, if Shotgun Willie was like the announcement, like the kind of rebellious announcement, this, this was his more expressive side to show you, like, this is, what I, this is where I can go. And where he went was deeper and weirder. And that would have never been possible without his manager, Neil Reshen, who Willie hired at the insistence of Waylon Jennings. Reshen was a pit bull for his artists, who managed Willie, Waylon, and Miles Davis. Part of Waylon's pitch to Willie was, he manages Miles Davis. <laughs> to which Willie responded, I, mean, I know his music, I love it. And Waylon, in true Waylon form, said, well, I don't really know his records, but I do know Miles don't mess around. He's all business. He's about the only jazz musician getting rich. And that's because he's got Neil Reshen taking care of the label bosses. And take care of the label bosses he did. Because when Atlantic folded their country division, Willie jumped over to Columbia Records, and Reshen fought to get Willie total creative control written right into his contract. All of that, plus the house fire that burnt down his ranch outside of Nashville, the collapse of his second marriage, and his switch from a casual marijuana smoker to a lifelong marijuana smoker, his experimentations with acid, and countless other details that we don't have time to go into here. But all this piled up, the night in the snow, the turmoil in his personal life, the stagnation of his artistic career. And we find Willie entering into the mid-1970s just plain not giving a fuck. It was a time of the preacher In the year of one And just when you think it's all over It's only begun. Redheaded Stranger is a bizarre record. Clocking in at only 33 minutes, the songs on their own are often so short they feel more like vignettes than full-fledged songs. But, when taken in as a whole, the story of the preacher wandering the desert after murdering his own wife is so vivid in your mind, it can feel like you aren't actually listening to an album, but watching an incredible movie with your eyes closed. The arrangements are so sparse, the performances are so subtle, and Willie's delivery is so calm. 
It can, according to Rebecca Bengal, set you into a trance. It's a great trance. Yeah. 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 It's a great, it's a great dark trance, but it's also, it's a very, it's a spacious record. And so that allows for that kind of, that kind of listening and driving and kind of mapping it to like whatever landscape you're in. But again, it's, it's one that's because there's, there's so many archetypes in the record. I think it, it does give, it gives a lot of room for people to sort of identify themselves, um, with whatever, with whatever part, with all the like, and it's, it's they're very imperfect archetypes too. Like the, the preacher is not, <laughs> is not necessarily an admirable character at all, but he is a wanderer. And I think, and I think there's, there's a real honesty in that character and an honesty that like Willie is reaching with himself about what it means to, to be an imperfect person in not just in love, but in life and in art and like in that in a way also too, it, it, it becomes his great gamble because he did allow himself to just really go out on a limb and like see if this crazy thing works. And I mean, now and he'd already had, I don't know how many albums he had under his belt at that point. Now he's, I can't even tell you exactly how many, cause there's so many, but, um, and he's relentless with it. But again, that, that allowed him to just fully realize this, this strange, weird idea and let that story tell itself and announce itself and be what it needed to be and say what it needed to and go musically where it wanted to. And it definitely, I mean, it's, it's country. It's super country. It's like out there in dark country, dark, weird country. And it allowed country to be that too. And to be, and to not be tied down to these, to not be tied down to these very, sort of realist but relatable notions but it allowed it allowed to country to like dream a little bit and, and to get a little weird and after redheaded stranger came out shot to the top of the charts country music did get weird and the epicenter for that weirdness was austin texas where a strange cross-pollination between the free love and acceptance of the hippie movement and the rebellious nature of the Texas Cowboys was combining to make, in Willie's words, a new type of person, and in turn, a whole new kind of music, outlaw country. But we'll get into that in episode two, where we focus on the red-headed stranger and Willie's role influencing and being influenced by the outlaw scene in Texas and what that scene has done to change music forever. These folks were as punk as what the punks were doing in New York City at the same time, as rebellious as what rap music was doing 10 to 15 years later, and as open-minded and as accepting as the hippies that swarmed on Woodstock a few years before. So, be sure to subscribe to The Opus wherever you get your podcasts. If it is Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating or a review. Those sorts of things help. You can find Essential Willie Nelson playlists on all your streaming music services right now, but you should go listen to Redheaded Stranger. In its entirety. It only takes 33 minutes. Put on your headphones and go for a walk. Or put it in your car and go for a drive. But you gotta listen to it from front to back without interruption. I promise. It'll be worth it. I'm Andy Bothwell. For Consequences Sound and Sony Music. This is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. 
Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.